Now, if you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 2, where we'll find our main text, or rather, chapter 3. Our main reading this morning, as we continue our series through Mark's Gospel, begins at verse 7. Hear together with me the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask for his special blessing. Our Father, as we come together this morning to receive the ministry of the word, even as you ordained, we acknowledge that apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, it is weakness itself. We cannot produce life in ourselves or anyone else. But your word is the seed and your spirit is life. And we ask that you would form first in ourselves and then also in our neighbors the response that you desire of greater faith, hope, and love of growing righteousness in every way that you would be glorified. For we ask it all in the victorious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Very often sermons focus on one main idea. And that makes a lot of sense. It tends to keep things simple, but it's important for us to remember not every passage, not every pericope, which is a subunit of scripture, not each of these texts has only one doctrine in view. Not every text has exactly one idea. And then there are many applications that could be drawn from probably every verse of the entire Bible. This morning, we are going to walk through this section of narrative, through this historical account in the Gospel of Mark, and we are going to observe three different features of this story. And as we do so, God helping us, we are going to draw out some observations and lessons, both about the nature of Jesus Christ, because Mark is giving us revelation of the good news concerning Jesus, according to 1 verse 1 of this gospel. But also, we are going to have windows into human nature, our nature, and then in turn, our calling. And so there will be three of these features that we look at as we go, and I'll announce each of them as we come to them. Before any of that, though, we need to do a little bit to set the stage. What are we dealing with here? Where are we at in this period of Jesus' ministry? Jesus is seeking to withdraw. It says to the sea, and it's talking about the Sea of Galilee. Now, there was a major city on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. And so, in all likelihood, Jesus is moving from Capernaum to one of the more desolate regions of the lake. He's seeking to withdraw, and why is he doing that? 
Well, it's very common, I think I do this too, to hear about Jesus' ministry and to imagine that he spends all of his time with crowds from day to night for three years straight. The reality is, in the first year and a half or so, he was still pretty much unknown. And he moves pretty frequently. He performs a miracle, and he almost instantly leaves that area. He's not sticking around. This is before anyone has cameras or TVs and all of that. And so he has relative anonymity. He's going from place to place. Now, why is he withdrawing at this point? Because he didn't come simply to standing crowds, nor was he seeking fame for its own sake, and he certainly wasn't doing miracles for their own sake either. The miracles were meant to bear witness to his authority concerning what he said. And the miracles reflect his compassion, but they're not why he was there. He wasn't there simply on some divine humanitarian mission to heal a lot of people. What was he there for? He was there to lay a foundation for the new covenant stage of his one church throughout all time. He was there to atone for our sins. He was there to make disciples who would carry the message of the gospel into all the world. And so the majority of Jesus' ministerial time was not spent in the middle of a crowd healing. Most of his time was spent in relatively intimate settings, three or 12 or 70 people pouring into them his teaching. And so he's seeking at this point to withdraw in order to focus on his primary mission, discipleship. He's going out to where he can teach and he can speak with his men and maybe get a little bit of rest from these crowds. That's what he's doing at this time. And it's important for us to even notice this from the beginning because where do we learn discipleship from? There's no better example than that of Jesus Christ himself. There's a book, I know I've recommended it before. If we're at this church together for any length of time, you'll hear about it again. I think it's one of those books that's in the list every Christian should read, and it's Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. Ironically, though it says evangelism, which means to declare the good news, it's actually about discipleship. That the good news, the way that we bring it to others, is inseparable from this calling to make disciples. And so even from this point, we can say that there's a sense in which we all have to withdraw as well. Discipleship will not be sufficiently completed simply by coming into a big group setting like this. This is important, and it's necessary, and it's commanded. But then there's also a time to withdraw into smaller communion with others, to pour into their lives, and to receive similarly from them. That's what Jesus is doing at this stage. That's why he is withdrawing. But now, on the horizon, we see something coming, and that is a huge crowd of people. And this brings us to our first feature of the text, this immense crowd who comes. And we need to ask what this reveals about human nature. And when I say human nature, I'm not talking other people's nature, I'm talking my nature and your nature. Something about the behavior and the actions of this crowd, I believe, is significant for everyone. Verses 7 and 8, look with me. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idiomea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now, at this stage of Mark's gospel, it conveys Jesus' rapidly growing fame. He has now overshadowed John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist says that he himself must decrease in order that Jesus might increase. 
John, according to the gospel, was being sought out by people from Jerusalem and Judea. So a 25-mile area in every direction. But now Jesus has people coming from hundreds of miles away, and not just Jewish people, it would seem. The Idiomians are the people from Petra. Maybe you've seen images of that red rock city built in the canyons. And they're coming all the way from out east. Meanwhile, you have Phoenicians coming down from Tyre and Sidon. These are cousins to the Greeks. The word of Jesus is spreading, and in some ways it's a beautiful glimpse of what will happen in the gospel, that Jesus attracts people of all nations. But we must ask, why at this point were people coming to Jesus? Verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Not per se all that he was saying. Now it's likely that there were those who were coming because they had an interest in the teaching of Jesus. And they want to know what is Jesus' doctrine? And what does he have to say in terms of, say, the political realm? Some thought that maybe he's a liberator. Or maybe he's some kind of prophet who's going to tell us new traditions or tell us things about the future. Certainly with thousands and thousands of people, there were those who came because they were interested in what he was saying. But the text indicates to us, mostly people were coming because they heard what he was doing. And John tells us in John chapter 6, very explicitly, Jesus says, you've come because you heard there's free bread. A couple of times Jesus performed miracles out of compassion where he fed crowds. And now others here, we don't know where he's getting the bread, but he's got bread. And at that time in history in that region, the average person spent the majority of their day's wage just on bread. I think that may be hard for many of us to understand given what technology has done in the last 150 years for the convenience, the ease of food. But people here, there's bread, and I don't have to work for it. Maybe they don't have work at that time, and so they go out to him. Now, in our text in Mark, the focus is on his healings and his famous spreading that there are people who, so many people, that even if it was only true that one in ten of them was being healed, well, now we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds healed. But the reality is they were all being healed. Everyone who came to Jesus seeking healing and believing upon him, he was healing. Now, what does this mean for us here? I want you to notice one further detail about the nature of their coming. Even when they arrive, it's not as if this crowd is understanding with the hindsight we have who Jesus is, and they recognize that he's so important, and they just want to listen to what he has to say. They are pressing in upon him so violently that there's a realistic concern of being crushed. That's the term used in the text. This is less of a pastoral, pretty scene of Jesus surrounded by sheep and children. This is verging on horror when you think of thousands of people who have heard, I don't know why it works, but if I touch him and I believe, I'm healed. And all these people with every kind of disease, malady, deformity are crowding in upon Jesus. They want deliverance. And Jesus recognizes the concern is so real that he tells his disciples who were fishermen, get a boat ready. I'm going to need to get on that boat because there's no going through that crowd. Could Jesus, somebody brought it up to me, couldn't he have just said, you know, I am, bam, and they all fall down. At this stage of Jesus' ministry, he's very much veiling aspects of his identity, and we're going to see that again a little bit later. 
He's veiling who he is because certain things must be fulfilled. And he's come not just to demonstrate authority and power. He very much does wish to help these people. But in the people, we don't at this point see that they are necessarily spiritual. In fact, in all probability, their concern is much more for their temporal welfare. How does my body feel? What will I wear? What will I eat? And that is true of us in general. And this is my point about human nature. By and large, people are far more sensitive to their temporal needs than they are to their spiritual condition. And they come to the Lord, if they even do come to him, asking what they can get for this life instead of what they need in order to be reconciled to God and brought back into his image to serve him. We come with selfishness so much of the time that we come to him at all. And that's fallen human nature. That's not some people. That's all people that we prioritize the temporal and the selfish above the spiritual and that which is Godward. And so they're pressing all around him, wanting these things. And yet, this is in a way the mercy of God. How many of those people never would have come into the presence of Christ if they weren't suffering? They wouldn't have sought some kind of relief. And it was in the very fact that they were in pain that they were brought to the Lord into his presence to hear his word. And it was there that they were forced to reckon with the reality of why is there suffering period in this world? Christianity has an answer that is difficult and painful but I think it's far superior in its coherence than that of the unbelieving in the secular world. Christianity can say, we suffer because there is sin, and it's in every one of us, and we are sinful. And if the Lord took his hand off of us, he's the stabilizing influence, preventing so much of the outpouring of sin in the world, but if he took his hand entirely away and allowed circumstances to play out where you were in a position of maximal temptation everywhere at once, you would discover what is in you. As one person said famously, there go I, but for the grace of God. I would do all those things too. Here, the Lord uses pain, uses suffering in ourselves and in others to force you to grapple with the reality that the world is broken. Now, the secular world can only say it has no meaning, pain is real, but it doesn't have any explanation. It's random. There's no purpose to draw from it. And that doesn't satisfy us because it's wrong. And it's an evasion from the very real fact of conscience. The Lord uses these circumstances to bring people to him. He takes no special delight in suffering for its own sake. But he does bring them here in order to deal with the most important aspect of Jesus' ministry. And John summarized that, John the Baptist, when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the physician who's gone out to heal every last person in this life of their maladies, but the Lamb of God who takes away sin. And so that forces you at this stage of the sermon to ask yourself, if you feel drawn to Christ, what is it that you're seeking mainly? Do you recognize in yourself the need for sin to be taken? Both the guilt of sin, but then for those of you who have come to Christ and are forgiven, stand justified for the realities of the consequences, the abiding nature of sin that clings to us. Is your desire for that to be taken away, or is it primarily to just get through this life with personal peace and affluence? 
But if the Lord sees fit to use suffering to help deepen our dependence upon him and our priorities, this is a mercy of God. It's a strong medicine, but it's a good one. Now, there's a second feature of this text that we turn to at this point, and it's to observe Jesus' response to this crowd. What does Jesus' response communicate about his nature? We've seen something of our nature, selfishness, temporal concern. But now Jesus responds to the crowd. What does it say about him? Recall again what he was attempting to do. He's trying to withdraw. He's not trying to withdraw because he selfishly just wants a break from people. He has a mission to fulfill. He has people to teach and to disciple. He too, being truly human, also needs sleep sometimes. Jesus is trying to withdraw. Then this huge crowd comes. And they demand his attention. And they impress themselves upon him, not just as any normal crowd, but people who are bringing every kind of disease into his presence. How would you feel if, say, you really needed to go somewhere, and you're getting into the car, and just at that moment, for some reason, you have just an, a one lone person, an individual, shows up that you don't know, who suddenly wants your time, and they are very clearly sick, and they're coughing a whole lot, and there's disgusting, I won't even describe, you know they're real sick, and they don't understand personal space, and they're in your face. Are you going to feel particularly patient and compassionate at that that moment? Probably not. Speaking for myself here. Jesus is surrounded by people taking from him, taking, taking, taking. Please give us, please help us. Give me something to help me now. Not thinking about his safety, thinking about their deliverance. As they're ready to trample him. And yet we don't read anything in this text or anywhere in the Gospels that he reacts to the crowd as a scold, losing his temper, saying, you're interrupting my important work. You're taking something from me. Do you know who I am? Even the demons know that I'm God. Do you recognize how you're intruding upon me right now, you filthy sinners with your big problems? The total opposite happens. And here in Mark's gospel, you're having a window into the character and the nature of Christ who does not change season to season, year after year. He's the same Lord. And he looks upon them with compassion. The gospels again and again use that term, a Greek term, which means the turning of the insides with anguish. He looks upon them with pity. And he's come to teach, but it's almost as if, humanly speaking, he cannot help himself. He must stay with them until he has healed all whom God wills to heal. And so he pours himself out and pours himself out to them. Isaiah 40, verse 11, foretold of the Messiah. And it's described Jesus in these terms. He will be like a shepherd tending his flock. In his arm he will gather the little lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He is a compassionate Lord. And what this means for you is that, yes, I am selfish. Yes, you are selfish. But when you bring yourself to Christ, when you recognize I have needs, both temporal and spiritual, when you walk into his presence, you find a Lord full of compassion. He's busy, but he's infinite. And so his resources aren't exhausted. He's willing and ready to receive the prayers of his people, to dole out aid. And so I exhort you, this is a Lord you should go to frequently. Don't wait to make your need known to him. 
run to him. Whether you're as far as Idiomia or in Jerusalem, wherever you are in life, you come to a compassionate Lord. Now somebody might object, and I would understand this objection. I can empathize with it. I, I think it's founded on wrong understanding. But they might object, but I've tried going to Jesus, and he didn't heal me. He didn't fix the problem that I was bringing to him. But the Gospels themselves don't tell us that Jesus healed every last person. In the first place, he only healed those who had faith in him. And that doesn't guarantee that he's going to heal you just because you have faith in him. He was doing it at a particular time for a particular purpose, to reveal his authority prior to the giving of the scriptures of the New Testament. And so we have an instance where it may be God's wisdom at that time to heal someone. That doesn't mean that it's God's wisdom and charity to you in your circumstance to do exactly what you think. What is best for us is not always what feels best to us right now. David elsewhere in the Psalms says that it was good for me, O Lord, to be afflicted, for then I sought you. Again, we don't like to hear that. I don't want suffering. But there's nothing about the actual text of the Bible that would ever lead a sensible person to think that Jesus came to give us easy lives. He might give you a relatively easy life, but that was not guaranteed. It was not in the contract. What was in the contract was no one should follow me unless they can put their hand to the plow and not look back. Take up a cross and follow me. Your suffering is very often the means by which some person in the present or future will find an avenue to believe that you have experienced grace. Paul tells the Corinthians, comfort others with the comfort whereby you were comforted. And if you have not experienced that surpasses understanding, something that goes beyond the ability to understand how can they have peace in this circumstance, why should somebody else think you have something to offer? What we offer the world is not platitudes, is not psychology. What we offer the world is the experience of a grace that enables us to believe that there is meaning in all things because God is sovereign and wise and that there is an age beyond this wherein we get to be heirs with Christ. And in the meantime, we suffer with and alongside the world. We weep with those who weep. If we will come to him, we'll find a compassionate Lord who is working for us. And he's proven it sufficiently. His dying for us should be sufficient proof. He has our best interests in mind. I don't judge his love of me by whether or not I suffer. I judge his love of me by whether or not he suffered. That's what we come back to. And so Mark brings us to this recognition of the compassion of Christ here. It also sets a, a standard for us, I believe. What are you? You're a human being. You're created to bear the image of God. But if you are in Jesus Christ, now you are a Christian, a person being patterned after Jesus Christ. And here the example that we have is of showing compassion even when it's inconvenient. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as personal time, private plans, all of that. But I would exhort you not to be too precious about your private time. Not to be too committed to your own expectations for how a day will unfold. So much so that you close yourself off to genuine needs, opportunities for compassion. Whether that be from our own children or loved ones, whether that be out in the world. The 
action of Jesus shows us someone who is ready and flexible to render love. Then we come to our third and our final feature of this text here, and that's in verse 11. And it has to do with Jesus' interaction with unclean spirits. And what does it reveal about Jesus' power and wisdom? Look with me at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Now, for some people at different times, this can be a very uncomfortable thing to encounter in the Bible. But there is no skirting that the Bible teaches that there is an unseen realm. Not because it's less real, it is as real as what we see and touch and observe around us, but it is veiled at this time largely from our experience. And we have stories in the Old Testament, for instance, where one prophet prays for a, a young man, Gehazi, that his eyes would be open to see what was there the whole time, and then he beholds a whole army of angels. There is an invisible reality, and one of the downsides of our place and time in history is the tide of secularism teaches us to think as though we are impermeable, that we are buffered against all invisible things. If they even do exist, they're somewhere out there, not in this universe, just something we think about, as if we aren't intruded upon, tempted by, influenced according to invisible, unseen realities. But the Bible teaches something very different. And if the enemy can succeed in luring people into unbelief through veiling himself, he's content with that as well. I don't think that the devil needs a fan club who openly acknowledges him. But many people live as though this is not a reality. The Gospels deal with it frankly. Sometimes they are called unclean spirits, and this is speaking as a Jewish idiom about unholiness, not being welcome in God's presence, unclean in that sense. Sometimes they're described according to a Greek idiom, demons or familiar spirits, which indicates that they are personal in nature, not simply a, a bad force or influence. They have minds and they can exhibit power, but not bodies with limits like our own. God did not, according to scripture, create them evil, but they are spirits which rebelled against him, just as we have a spirit and we rebel. Also, it's important to note here that Mark is not communicating. There's nothing in the text to suggest that every person who has a physical ailment is also being oppressed by a demon. And I hope that none of you think that, but I know that idea is out there in the world. In some quarters, there are people who seem to think that every single, behind every sneeze, there's a need for some kind of ritual to relieve a person of oppression. The Gospels themselves sometimes make a distinction where it will say, Jesus healed epileptics and those who were possessed of demons, making a distinction. There may be overlap, but there is not necessarily overlap. It would seem, in my reading of Scripture, and I think the typical Reformed perspective of this, that just prior to Jesus' earthly ministry, there was a surge in what God allowed in terms of demonic activity, particularly in that region of the world. We can't speak for all places. And perhaps that was to underscore the authority of Jesus, and we encounter that here. When Jesus comes into the presence of these beings who clearly see things we don't see, they have access to a reality that's veiled from us, Perhaps as an analogy, it's not the same, but I am told that bees can see wavelengths of light that you and I don't see. 
Well, there are beings which see that which is spiritual. And they recognize immediately who Jesus is. And they declare that he is the Son of God. They cried out, you are the Son of God. But it also says they fell down before him. When Mark uses this term to fall down, it's, it's not like they tripped, right? It is falling down in submission. This is a term used for when people come into the presence of a great authority figure or someone whom they fear. And this doesn't mean that they reverence with a godly reverence. James speaks of demons believing in Jesus, but trembling and shuddering. They fear him. At least they're that sensible. But they have a fear of Jesus where they're hoping to allay his wrath by acknowledging who he is. This shows us something of the power of Jesus. People looking upon him see this meek and mild man. But the reality is they've come into the presence of God incarnate. But then Jesus, in verse 12, strictly ordered them not to make him known. I've heard it said that there's no such press that is not good press. But here Jesus does not need the press of the demons. Why, though? Why doesn't he want them to make him known? And he may have been speaking specifically to the unclean spirits. Some commentaries think he's speaking to everyone within earshot. When he strictly charges them, he's really saying to the crowd who heard that, don't make it known. Now, he's not denying it, but he's saying now is not the time to declare this openly. Why? And I would submit to you, and I'm not certain of why. There are different takes that I think are within acceptable realm. Hear what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, Among the mature, speaking of spiritually mature people, among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. When it says the rulers of this age, you think political figures, thought leaders, religious leaders. And Paul says, what we are communicating is a wisdom, but it's not the wisdom of those people. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now he's about to read a passage that I think is one of the most misunderstood or misquoted passages perhaps in the entire Bible. There's a mystery that the leaders of this world didn't know, didn't anticipate. They didn't see it coming. But now God has been pleased to reveal it. What is this mystery? But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So often we hear, no eye has seen, nor ears heard, our thought goes to what? It goes to heaven. No, no eye has seen or hear. But in the context, it's talking about the incarnation. It's talking about no one saw coming that God himself would take on our flesh and walk among us and bring about salvation by a human death with divine wrath. No one imagined that. This was beyond our expectations. No eye has seen or ears heard nor the heart of man imagined what God prepared for those who love him. What did he prepare? He prepared himself. He prepared a sacrifice. And here we read that none of them understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That doesn't mean they would have been believers and love him, but if Pontius Pilate and 
Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas. If all of these people recognized and really thought there was a possibility that God was walking among them, do you think they would have been willing to follow through with the crucifixion? Paul says no. Humanly speaking, God, who, he's threading the historical needle. He's providing the circumstances such that his name is spreading, his disciples know who he is, but he will still be crucified. And I, I wish I could communicate, and maybe you feel this on some level, the beauty and the glory of a God who is not above historical circumstances. He works in actual time. He knows the, the tendencies of the human heart such that he can ensure the crucifixion, crucifixion takes place and that people are still responsible agents. He doesn't have to coerce them or force them. He knows what is in the heart of man. And if he has such wisdom and power to supervene in history for even the crucifixion in order to fulfill hundreds of prophecies and bring about salvation, then doesn't he have power and knowledge of your life and every circumstance and detail of your day-to-day -day living? And the Lord calls you to look upon this and to trust he who has power over disease and power over demons, he has power and he has wisdom and he has compassion that he can bring into your and my life. So we come to these things, and again, I don't think that there's one lesson in most passages of the Bible. There's a true truth, but there are many applications. And so I leave it to you as simply several questions here as we close. First, I ask you, have you or do you feel yourself drawn to Jesus? And if you do, then I ask you, what is it that draws you? And I exhort you, let it not be simply the temporal things in this life. There are those who come to a church from time to time specifically because they're looking for more community and they assume that all religions are basically the same. One is as good as another. I just need to plug into a community. I'm looking for a spouse and so I'm going to go here. Or I'm looking for some friends. I'm looking for a roommate. I'm looking for business opportunities. I'm looking for a network to help me with personal problems I'm having a marriage that's struggling, or depression. All of those, I don't mean to say, don't matter. Christ came in order to bring about a salvation that will bring ultimate resolution to all of those. But foremost is your own reconciliation with a God who is rightly offended by sin. I exhort you, be reconciled to him. Confess your sin and trust that he will forgive. He is compassionate. Finally, I encourage you to recognize the season that we live in. He tells those unclean spirits, strictly, do not go and tell others yet who I am. You don't have that charge. You have the total opposite calling. Our calling is make him known, especially as we come into what we call Advent season, a season historically where the church thinks on, meditates upon the glory of the incarnation. This is a season to make known to our friends and our family and to anyone our faith in God among us. May God help us to do that and give us eyes to see the opportunities, perhaps the compassion to deal with people in this season. Let's ask him to help us even now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your grace revealed in Jesus Christ your compassion upon every kind of suffering person, your forbearance in overlooking 
the mixture of our motives. We ask that you please have mercy upon us to heal us in body, but especially in spirit. We pray that you would work in us such that no trial or ailment would be a squandered opportunity to be brought to the feet of Christ and to remember with thanks the ultimate security and salvation that we await in the age to come. We ask that you would receive our love and that you would refract it out through us to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.